So Long and Thanks for All the Fish by Douglas Adams. Read by Martin Freeman. Prologue. Far out in the uncharted backwaters of the unfashionable end of the western spiral arm of the galaxy lies a small, unregarded yellow sun. Orbiting this at a distance of roughly 92 million miles is an utterly insignificant little blue-green planet whose ape-descended life forms are so amazingly primitive that they still think digital watches are a pretty neat idea. This planet has, or had, a problem, which was this. Most of the people living on it were unhappy for pretty much of the time. Many solutions were suggested for this problem, but most of these were largely concerned with the movements of small green pieces of paper, which is odd, because on the whole it wasn't the small green pieces of paper which were unhappy. And so the problem remained. Lots of the people were mean, and most of them were miserable even the ones with digital watches. Many were increasingly of the opinion that they'd all made a big mistake in coming down from the trees in the first place, and some said that even the trees had been a bad move and that no one should ever have left the oceans. And then, one Thursday, nearly 2,000 years after one man had been nailed to a tree for saying how great it would be to be nice to people for a change, a girl, sitting on her own in a small cafe in Rickmansworth, suddenly realised what it was that had been going wrong all this time, and she finally knew how the world could be made a good and happy place. This time it was right, it would work, and no one would have to get nailed to anything. Sadly, however, before she could get to a phone to tell anyone about it, the earth was unexpectedly demolished to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, and so the idea was lost, seemingly forever. This is her story. Chapter 1 That evening it was dark early, which was normal for the time of year. It was cold and windy, which was normal. It started to rain, which was particularly normal. A spacecraft landed, which was not. There was nobody around to see it except for some spectacularly stupid quadrupeds who hadn't the faintest idea what to make of it or whether they were meant to make anything of it, or eat it, or what. So they did what they did to everything, which was to run away from it and try to hide under each other, which never worked. It slipped down out of the clouds, seemingly balanced on a single beam of light. From a distance, you would scarcely have noticed it through the lightning and the storm clouds, but seen from close to, it was strangely beautiful. A grey craft of elegantly sculpted form, quite small, of course, one never has the slightest notion what size or shape different species are going to turn out to be, but if you were to take the findings of the latest mid-galactic census report as any kind of accurate guide to statistical averages, you would probably guess that the craft would hold about six people, and you would be right. You'd probably guess that anyway. The census report, like most such surveys, had cost an awful lot of money and didn't tell anybody anything they didn't already know, except that every single person in the galaxy had 2.4 legs and owned a hyena. Since this was clearly not true, the whole thing had eventually to be scrapped. The craft slid quietly down through the rain, 
its dim operating lights seeming to wrap it in tasteful rainbows. It hummed very quietly, a hum which became gradually louder and deeper as it approached the ground, and which, at an altitude of six inches, became a heavy throb. At last it dropped and was quiet. A hatchway opened. A short flight of steps unfolded itself. A light appeared in the opening, a bright light streaming out into the wet night, and shadows moved within. A tall figure appeared in the light, looked around, flinched, and hurried down the steps, carrying a large shopping bag under his arm. He turned and gave a single abrupt wave back to the ship. Already the rain was streaming through his hair. Thank you, he called out. Thank you very... He was interrupted by a sharp crack of thunder. He glanced up apprehensively, and in response to a sudden thought, quickly started to rummage through the large plastic shopping bag, which he now discovered had a hole in the bottom. It had large characters printed on the side which read, to anyone who could decipher the Centurion alphabet, Duty Free Mega Market, Port Braster, Alpha Centauri. Be like the 22nd elephant with heated value in space. Bark. Hold on, the figure called, waving at the ship. The steps, which had started to fold themselves back through the hatchway, stopped, re-unfolded, and allowed him back in. He emerged again a few seconds later, carrying a battered and threadbare towel, which he shoved into the bag. He waved again, hoisted the bag under his arm, and started to run for the shelter of some trees, as, behind him, the spacecraft had already begun its ascent. Lightning flitted through the sky and made the figure pause for a moment, and then hurry onwards, revising his path to give the trees a wide berth. He moved swiftly across the ground, slipping here and there, hunching himself against the rain which was falling now with ever-increasing concentration, as if being pulled from the sky. His feet sloshed through the mud. Thunder grumbled over the hills. He pointlessly wiped the rain off his face and stumbled on. More lights. Not lightning this time, but more diffused and dimmer lights which played slowly over the horizon and faded. The figure paused again on seeing them, and then redoubled his steps, making directly towards the point on the horizon at which they had appeared. And now the ground was becoming steeper, sloping upwards, and after another two or three hundred yards it led at last to an obstacle. The figure paused to examine the barrier and then dropped the bag he was carrying over it before climbing over himself. Hardly had the figure touched the ground on the other side when there came, sweeping out of the rain towards him, a machine, light streaming through the wall of water. The figure pressed back as the machine streaked towards him. It was a low bulbous shape, like a small whale surfing, sleek, grey and rounded, and moving at terrifying speed. The figure instinctively threw up his hands to protect himself, but was hit only by a sluice of water as the machine swept past and off into the night. It was illuminated briefly by another flicker of lightning crossing the sky, which allowed the soaked figure by the roadside a split second to read a small sign at the back of the machine before it disappeared. To the figure's apparent incredulous astonishment, the sign read, My other car is also a Porsche. Chapter 2 Rob McKenna was a miserable bastard. 
and he knew it because he'd had a lot of people pointed out to him over the years, and he saw no reason to disagree with them, except the obvious one, which was that he liked disagreeing with people, particularly people he disliked, which included, at the last count, everybody. He heaved a sigh and shoved down a gear. The hill was beginning to steepen, and his lorry was heavy with Danish thermostatic radiator controls. It wasn't that he was naturally predisposed to be so surly, at least he hoped not. It was just the rain which got him down. Always the rain. It was raining now, just for a change. It was a particular type of rain that he particularly disliked, particularly when he was driving. He had a number for it. It was rain type 17. He had read somewhere that the Eskimos had over 200 different words for snow, without which their conversation would probably have got very monotonous. So they would distinguish between thin snow and thick snow, light snow and heavy snow, sludgy snow, brittle snow, snow that came in flurries, snow that came in drifts, snow that came in on the bottom of your neighbour's boots all over your nice clean igloo floor, the snows of winter, the snows of spring, the snows you remember from your childhood that were so much better than any of your modern snow, fine snow, feathery snow, hill snow, valley snow. Snow that falls in the morning, snow that falls at night. Snow that falls all of a sudden just when you were going out fishing, and snow that despite all your efforts to train them, the huskies have pissed on. Rob McKenna had 231 different types of rain entered in his little book, and he didn't like any of them. He shifted down another gear and the lorry heaved its revs up. It grumbled in a comfortable sort of way about all the Danish thermostatic radiator controls it was carrying. Since he had left Denmark the previous afternoon, he had been through types 33, light pricking drizzle which made the road slippery, 39, heavy spotting, 47 to 51, vertical light drizzle through to sharply slanting light to moderate drizzle freshening, 87 and 88, two finely distinguished varieties of vertical torrential downpour, 100, post-downpour squalling, cold, all the sea storm types between 192 and 213 at once, 123, 124, 126, 127, mild and intermediate cold gusting, regular and syncopated cab drumming, 11, breezy droplets, and now his least favourite of all, 17. Rain type 17 was a dirty blatter battering against his windscreen so hard that it didn't make much odds whether he had his wipers on or off. He tested this theory by turning them off briefly, but as it turned out the visibility did get quite a lot worse. It just failed to get better again when he turned them back on. In fact one of the wiper blades began to flap off. Swish, 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 flop, swish, swish, flop. Swish, swish, flop. Swish, flop. Swish, flop, flop, flap. Scrape. He pounded his steering wheel, kicked the floor, thumped his cassette player till it suddenly started playing Barry Manilow, thumped it till it stopped again, and swore and swore and swore and swore and swore. It was at the very moment that his fury was peaking that there loomed swimmingly in his headlights, hardly visible through the blatter, a figure by the roadside. A poor bedraggled figure, strangely attired, wetter than an otter in a washing machine, and hitching. Poor miserable sod, 
thought Rob McKenna to himself, realising that here was somebody with a better right to feel hard done by than himself. Must be chilled to the bone. Stupid to be out hitching on a filthy night like this. All you get is cold, wet and lorries driving through puddles at you. He shook his head grimly, heaved another sigh, gave the wheel a turn and hit a large sheet of water square on. See what I mean? he thought to himself as he ploughed swiftly through it. You get some right bastards on the road. Splattered in his rear mirror a couple of seconds later was the reflection of the hitchhiker drenched by the roadside. For a moment he felt good about this. A moment or two later he felt bad about feeling good about it. Then he felt good about feeling bad about feeling good about it and, satisfied, drove on into the night. At least it made up for having been finally overtaken by that poor she had been diligently blocking for the last twenty miles. And as he drove on, the rain clouds dragged down the sky after him. For, though he did not know it, Rob McKenna was a rain god. All he knew was that his working days were miserable and he had a succession of lousy holidays. All the clouds knew was that they loved him and wanted to be near him, to cherish him and to water him. Chapter 3 The next two lorries were not driven by rain gods, but they did exactly the same thing. The figure trudged, or rather sloshed, onwards till the hill resumed and the treacherous sheet of water was left behind. After a while the rain began to ease and the moon put in a brief appearance from behind the clouds. A Renault drove by, and its driver made frantic and complex signals to the trudging figure to indicate that normally he would have been delighted to give the figure a lift, only he couldn't this time because he wasn't going in the direction that the figure wanted to go, whatever direction that might be, and he was sure the figure would understand. He concluded the signalling with a cheery thumbs-up sign, as if to say that he hoped the figure felt really fine about being cold and almost terminally wet, and he would catch him next time round. The figure trudged on. A Fiat passed and did exactly the same as the Renault. A Maxi passed on the other side of the road and flashed its lights at the slowly plodding figure, though whether this was meant to convey a hello or a sorry we're going the other way or a hey look there's someone in the rain what a jerk was entirely unclear. A green strip across the top of the windscreen indicated that whatever the message was, it came from Steve and Corolla. The storm had now definitely abated and what thunder there was now grumbled over more distant hills, like a man saying, and another thing, twenty minutes after admitting he's lost the argument. The air was clearer now, the night cold. Sound travelled rather well. The lost figure, shivering desperately, presently reached a junction, where a side road turned off to the left. Opposite the turning stood a signpost, which the figure suddenly hurried to and studied with feverish curiosity, only twisting away from it as another car passed suddenly. And another. The first whisked by with complete disregard, the second flashed meaninglessly. A Ford Cortina passed and put on its brakes. Lurching with surprise, the figure bundled his bag to his chest and hurried forward towards the car, but at the last moment the Cortina spun its wheels in the wet and careered off up the road rather amusingly. The figure slowed to a stop, and stood there, lost and dejected. As it chanced, the following day the driver of the Cortina went into hospital to have his appendix out, 
only due to a rather amusing mix-up, the surgeon removed his leg in error, and before the appendectomy could be rescheduled, the appendicitis complicated into an entertainingly serious case of peritonitis, and justice, in its way, was served. The figure trudged on. A Saab drew to a halt beside him. Its window wound down and a friendly voice said, Have you come far? The figure turned towards it. He stopped and grasped the handle of the door. The figure, the car and its door handle were all on a planet called the Earth. A world whose entire entry in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy comprised the two words, mostly harmless. The man who wrote this entry was called Ford Prefect, and he was at this precise moment on a far-from-harmless world, sitting in a far-from-harmless bar, recklessly causing trouble. Chapter 4 Whether it was because he was drunk, ill, or suicidally insane would not have been apparent to a casual observer, and indeed there were no casual observers in the old pink dog bar on the lower south side of Han Dold City, because it wasn't the sort of place you could afford to do things casually in if you wanted to stay alive. Any observers in the place would have been mean, hawk-like observers, heavily armed, with painful throbbings in their heads, which caused them to do crazy things when they observed things they didn't like. One of those nasty hushes had descended on the place, a sort of missile crisis sort of hush. Even the evil-looking bird perched on a rod in the bar had stopped screeching out the names and addresses of local contract killers, which was a service it provided for free. All eyes were on Ford Prefect. Some of them were on stalks. The particular way in which he was choosing to dice recklessly with death today was by trying to pay for a drinks bill the size of a small defence budget with an American Express card, which was not acceptable anywhere in the known universe. What are you worried about? he asked in a cheery kind of voice. The expiration date? Have you guys never heard of neo-relativity out here? There's whole new areas of physics which can take care of this sort of thing. Time dilation effects, temporal relastatics. We are not worried about the expiration date said the man to whom he addressed these remarks, who was a dangerous barman in a dangerous city. His voice was a low, soft purr, like the low, soft purr made by the opening of an ICBM silo. A hand like a side of meat, tapped lightly on the bar top, lightly denting it. Well, that's good then, said Ford, packing his satchel and preparing to leave. The tapping finger reached out and rested lightly on the shoulder of Ford Prefect. It prevented him from leaving. Although the finger was attached to a slab-like hand and the hand was attached to a club-like forearm, the forearm wasn't attached to anything at all, except in the metaphorical sense that it was attached by a fierce dog-like loyalty to the bar, which was its home. It had previously been more conventionally attached to the original owner of the bar, who, on his deathbed, had unexpectedly bequeathed it to medical science. Medical science had decided they didn't like the look of it and had bequeathed it right back to the old pink dog bar. The new barman didn't believe in the supernatural or poltergeists or anything kooky like that. He just knew a useful ally when he saw one. The hand sat on the bar. It took orders. It served drinks. It dealt murderously with people who behaved as if they wanted to be murdered. Ford Prefect sat still. 
We are not worried about the expiration date, repeated the barman, satisfied that he now had four prefects' full attention. We are worried about the entire piece of plastic. What? said Ford. He seemed a little taken aback. This, said the barman, holding out the card as if it were a small fish whose soul had three weeks earlier winged its way to the land where fish are eternally blessed. We don't accept it. Ford wondered briefly whether to raise the fact that he didn't have any other means of payment on him, but decided for the moment to soldier on. The disembodied hand was now grasping his shoulder, lightly but firmly, between its finger and thumb. But you don't understand, said Ford, his expression slowly ripening from a little taken abackness into rank incredulity. This is the American Express card. It is the finest way of settling bills known to man. Haven't you read their junk mail? The cheery quality of Ford's voice was beginning to grate on the barman's ears. It sounded like someone relentlessly playing the kazoo during one of the more sombre passages of a war requiem. One of the bones in Ford's shoulder began to grate against another one of the bones in his shoulder, in a way which suggested that the hand had learned the principles of pain from a highly skilled chiropractor. He hoped he could get this business settled before the hand started to grate one of the bones in his shoulder against any of the bones in different parts of his body. Luckily, the shoulder it was holding was not the one he had his satchel slung over. The barman slid the card back across the bar at Ford. We have never, he said with muted savagery, heard of this thing. This was hardly surprising. Ford had only acquired it through a serious computer error towards the end of the fifteen years sojourn he had spent on the planet Earth. Exactly how serious the American Express Company had got to know very rapidly, and the increasingly strident and panic-stricken demands of its debt collection department were only silenced by the unexpected demolition of the entire planet by the Vogons to make way for a new hyperspace bypass. He had kept it ever since, because he found it useful to carry a form of currency that no one would accept. Credit, he said. Ah! These two words were usually coupled together in the old pink dog bar. I thought, gasped Ford, that this was meant to be a class establishment. He glanced around at the motley collection of thugs, pimps and record company executives that skulked on the edges of the dim pools of light with which the dark shadows of the bar's inner recesses were pitted. They were all very deliberately looking in any direction but his now, carefully picking up the threads of their former conversations about murders, drug rings and music publishing deals. They knew what would happen now and didn't want to watch in case it put them off their drinks. You gonna die, boy, the barman murmured quietly at Ford Prefect, and the evidence was on his side. The bar used to have one of those signs hanging up which said, Please don't ask for credit as a punch in the mouth often offends, but in the interest of strict accuracy, this was altered to, Please don't ask for credit because having your throat torn out by a savage bird while a disembodied hand smashes your head against the bar often offends. However, this made an unreadable mess of the notice, and anyway didn't have the same ring to it, so it was taken down again. It was felt that the story would get about of its own accord, and it had. Let me look at the bill again, said Ford. 
He picked it up and studied it thoughtfully under the malevolent gaze of the barman and the equally malevolent gaze of the bird, which was currently gouging great furrows in the bar top with its talons. It was a rather lengthy piece of paper. At the bottom of it was a number which looked like one of those serial numbers you find on the underside of stereo sets, which always take so long to copy onto the registration form. He had, after all, been in the bar all day. He had been drinking a lot of stuff with bubbles in it, and he had bought an awful lot of rounds for all the pimps, thugs and record executives who suddenly couldn't remember who he was. He cleared his throat rather quietly and patted his pockets. There was, as he knew, nothing in them. He rested his left hand lightly but firmly on the half-open flap of his satchel. The disembodied hand renewed its pressure on his right shoulder. You see, said the barman, and his face seemed to wobble evilly in front of Ford's. I have a reputation to think of. You see that, don't you? This is it, thought Ford. There was nothing else for it. He had obeyed the rules. He had made a bona fide attempt to pay his bill. It had been rejected. He was now in danger of his life. Well, he said quietly, if it's your reputation... With a sudden flash of speed, he opened his satchel and slapped down on the bar top his copy of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the official card which said that he was a field researcher for the guide and absolutely not allowed to do what he was now doing. Want a write-up? The barman's face stopped in mid-wobble. The bird's talons stopped in mid-furrow. The hand slowly released its grip. That said the barman in a barely audible whisper from between dry lips. We'll do nicely, sir. Chapter 5 The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is a powerful organ. Indeed, its influence is so prodigious that strict rules have had to be drawn up by its editorial staff to prevent its misuse so none of its field researchers are allowed to accept any kind of services, discounts or preferential treatment of any kind in return for editorial favours unless a. they have made a bona fide attempt to pay for a service in the normal way b. their lives would be otherwise in danger or c. they really want to. Since invoking the third rule always involved giving the editor a cut, Ford always preferred to muck about with the first two. He stepped out along the street, walking briskly. The air was stifling, but he liked it because it was stifling city air, full of excitingly unpleasant smells, dangerous music and the distant sound of warring police tribes. He carried his satchel with an easy swaying motion so that he could get a good swing at anybody who tried to take it from him without asking. It contained everything he owned, which at the moment wasn't much. A limousine careered down the street, dodging between the piles of burning garbage and frightening an old pack animal which lurched, screeching out of its way, stumbled against the window of a herbal remedy shop, set off a wailing alarm, blundered off down the street and then pretended to fall down the steps of a small Italian restaurant where it knew it would get photographed and fed. Ford was walking north. He thought he was probably on his way to the spaceport, but he had thought that before. He knew he was going through that part of the city where people's plans often changed quite abruptly. Do you want to have a good time? said a voice from a doorway. As far as I can tell, said Ford, I'm having one, thanks. 
Are you rich? said another. This made Ford laugh. He turned and opened his arms in a wide gesture. Do I look rich? he said. Don't know, said the girl. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe you'll get rich. I have a very special service for rich people. Oh yes, said Ford, intrigued but careful. And what's that? I tell them it's okay to be rich. Gunfire erupted from a window high above them, but it was only a bass player getting shot for playing the wrong riff three times in a row, and bass players are two a penny in hand-dulled city. Ford stopped and peered into the dark doorway. You what? he said. The girl laughed and stepped forward a little out of the shadow. She was tall and had that kind of self-possessed shyness which is a great trick if you can do it. It's my big number, she said. I have a master's degree in social economics and can be very convincing. People love it, especially in this city. Gooznag, said Ford Prefect, which was a special Beetlejuicean word he used when he knew he should say something but didn't know what it should be. He sat on a step, took from his satchel a bottle of that old jank spirit and a towel. He opened the bottle and wiped the top of it with the towel, which had the opposite effect of the one intended, in that the old jank spirit instantly killed off millions of the germs which had been slowly building up quite a complex and enlightened civilization on the smellier patches of his towel. Want some? he said, after he'd had a swig himself. She shrugged and took the proffered bottle. They sat for a while, peacefully listening to the clamour of burglar alarms in the next block. As it happens, I'm owed a lot of money, said Ford, so if I ever get hold of it, can I... Come and see you then, maybe? Sure, I'll be here, said the girl. So how much is a lot? Fifteen years back pay. Four? Writing two words. Zarquan, said the girl. Which one took the time? The first one. Once I'd got that, the second one just came one afternoon after lunch. A huge electronic drum kit hurtled through the window high above them and smashed itself to bits in the street in front of them. It soon became apparent that some of the burglar alarms on the next block had been deliberately set off by one police tribe in order to lay an ambush for the other. Cars with screaming sirens converged on the area, only to find themselves being picked off by helicopters which came thudding through the air between the city's mountainous tower blocks. In fact, said Ford, having to shout now above the din, it wasn't quite like that. I wrote an awful lot, but they just cut it down. He took his copy of the guide back out of his satchel. Then the planet got demolished, he shouted. Really worthwhile job, eh? They've still got to pay me, though. You work for that thing, the girl yelled back. Yeah, good number. You want to see the stuff I wrote, he shouted, before it gets erased? The new revisions are due to be released tonight over the net. Someone must have found out that the planet I spent 15 years on has been demolished by now. They missed it on the last few revisions, but it can't escape their notice forever. It's getting impossible to talk, isn't it? What? She shrugged and pointed upwards. There was a helicopter above them now which seemed to be involved in a side skirmish with the band upstairs. Smoke was billowing from the building. The sound engineer was hanging out of the window by his fingertips and a maddened guitarist was beating on his fingers with a burning guitar. The helicopter was firing at all of them. Can we move? They wandered down the street, away from the noise. 
they ran into a street theatre group which tried to do a short play for them about the problems of the inner city, but then gave up and disappeared into the small restaurant most recently patronised by the pack animal. All the time, Ford was poking at the interface panel of the guide. They ducked into an alleyway. Ford squatted on a garbage can while information began to flood over the screen of the guide. He located his entry. Earth. Mostly harmless. Almost immediately, the screen became a mass of system messages. Here it comes, he said. Please wait, said the messages. Entries are being updated over the sub-ethernet. This entry is being revised. The system will be down for ten seconds. At the end of the alley, a steel-grey limousine crawled past. Hey, look, said the girl. If you get paid, look me up. I'm a working girl and there are people over there who need me. I gotta go. She brushed aside Ford's half-articulated protests and left him sitting dejectedly on his garbage can, preparing to watch a large swathe of his working life being swept away electronically into the ether. Out in the street, things had calmed down a little. The police battle had moved off to other sectors of the city. The few surviving members of the rock band had agreed to recognise their musical differences and pursue solo careers. The street theatre group were re-emerging from the Italian restaurant with the pack animal, telling it they would take it to a bar they knew where it would be treated with a little respect. And a little way further on, the steel-grey limousine was parked silently by the curbside. The girl hurried towards it. Behind her, in the darkness of the alley, a green flickering glow was bathing Ford Prefect's face and his eyes were slowly widening in astonishment. For where he had expected to find nothing and a raised closed-off entry, there was instead a continuous stream of data. Text, diagrams, figures and images, moving descriptions of surf on Australian beaches, yoghurt on Greek islands, restaurants to avoid in Los Angeles currency deals to avoid in Istanbul, weather to avoid in London, bars to go everywhere. Pages and pages of it. It was all there. Everything he had written. With a deepening frown of blank incomprehension, he went backwards and forwards through it, stopping here and there at various entries. Tips for aliens in New York. Land anywhere. Central Park, anywhere. No one will care, or indeed even notice. Surviving. Get a job as a cab driver immediately. A cab driver's job is to drive people anywhere they want to go in big yellow machines called taxis. Don't worry if you don't know how the machine works and you can't speak the language, don't understand the geography or indeed the basic physics of the area and have large green antennae growing out of your head. Believe me, this is the best way of staying inconspicuous. If your body is really weird, try showing it to people in the streets for money. Amphibious life forms from any of the worlds in the Swelling, Noxious or Norsalia systems will particularly enjoy the East River, which is said to be richer in those lovely life-giving nutrients than the finest and most virulent laboratory slime yet achieved. Having fun. This is the big section. It is impossible to have more fun without electrocuting your pleasure centres. Ford flipped the switch, which he saw was now marked Mode Execute Ready, instead of the now old-fashioned access standby, which had so long ago replaced the appallingly Stone Age, off. This was a planet he had seen completely destroyed, seen with his own two eyes, or rather blinded as he had been by the hellish disruption of air and light, felt with his own two feet as the ground had started to pound at him like a hammer, 
bucking, roaring, gripped by tidal waves of energy pouring out of the loathsome yellow Vogon ships. And then at last, five seconds after the moment he had determined as being the last possible moment had already passed, the gently swinging nausea of dematerialisation as he and Arthur Dent had been beamed up through the atmosphere like a sports broadcast. There was no mistake. There couldn't have been. The Earth had definitely been destroyed. Definitely. Definitely. Boiled away into space. And yet here, he activated the guide again, was his own entry on how you had set about having a good time in Bournemouth, Dorset, England, which he had always prided himself on as being one of the most baroque pieces of invention he had ever delivered. He read it again and shook his head in sheer wonder. Suddenly he realised what the answer to the problem was, and it was this, that something very weird was happening. And if something very weird was happening, he thought, he wanted it to be happening to him. He stashed the guide back in his satchel and hurried out onto the street again. Walking north again, he passed a steel-grey limousine parked by the curbside, and from a nearby doorway he heard a soft voice saying, "'It's okay, honey, it's really okay. You've got to learn to feel good about it. Look at the way the whole economy is structured.' Ford grinned, detoured round the next block which was now in flames, found a police helicopter which was standing unattended in the street, broke into it, strapped himself in, crossed his fingers, and sent it hurtling inexpertly into the sky." He weaved terrifyingly up through the canyoned walls of the city, and once clear of them, hurtled through the black and red pall of smoke which hung permanently above it. Ten minutes later, with all the copter's sirens blaring and its rapid-fire cannon blasting at random into the clouds, Ford Prefect brought it careering down among the gantries and landing lights at hand-doled spaceport, where it settled like a gigantic, startled and very noisy gnat. Since he hadn't damaged it too much, he was able to trade it in for a first-class ticket on the next ship leaving the system, and settled into one of its huge, voluptuous, body-hugging seats. This was going to be fun, he thought to himself, as the ship blinked silently across the insane distances of deep space and the cabin service got into its full, extravagant swing. Yes, please, he said to the cabin attendants whenever they glided up to offer him anything at all. He smiled with a curious kind of manic joy as he flipped again through the mysteriously reinstated entry on the planet Earth. He had a major piece of unfinished business that he would now be able to attend to, and was terribly pleased that life had suddenly furnished him with a serious goal to achieve. It suddenly occurred to him to wonder where Arthur Dent was, and if he knew... Arthur Dent was 1,437 light-years away in a Saab, and anxious. Behind him, in the back seat, was a girl who had made him crack his head on the door as he climbed in. He didn't know if it was just because she was the first female of his own species that he had laid eyes on in years, or what it was, but he felt stupefied with... with... This is absurd, he told himself. Calm down, he told himself. You are not, he continued to himself in the firmest internal voice he could muster, in a fit and rational state. You have just hitchhiked over a hundred thousand light years across the galaxy. You are very tired, a little confused and extremely vulnerable. Relax. Don't panic. Concentrate on breathing deeply. He twisted round in his seat. 
you sure she's all right? he said again. Beyond the fact that she was, to him, heart-thumpingly beautiful, he could make out very little. How tall she was, how old she was, the exact shading of her hair. And nor could he ask her anything about herself because, sadly, she was completely unconscious. She's just drugged, said her brother, shrugging, not moving his eyes from the road ahead. And that's all right, is it? said Arthur, in alarm. Suits me, he said. Ah, said Arthur. Er, uh, he added, after a moment's thought. The conversation so far had been going astoundingly badly. After an initial flurry of opening hellos, he and Russell, the wonderful girl's brother's name was Russell, a name which, to Arthur's mind, always suggested burly men with blonde moustaches and blow-dried hair who would, at the slightest provocation, start wearing velvet tuxedos and frilly shirt-fronts and would then have to be forcibly restrained from commentating on snooker matches, had quickly discovered they didn't like each other at all. Russell was a burly man. He had a blonde moustache. His hair was fine and blow-dried. To be fair to him, though Arthur didn't see any necessity for this beyond the sheer mental exercise of it, he, Arthur, was looking pretty grim himself. A man can't cross a hundred thousand light-years, mostly in other people's baggage compartments, without beginning to fray a little, and Arthur had frayed a lot. "'She's not a junkie,' said Russell suddenly, as if he clearly thought that someone else in the car might be. "'She's under sedation.' "'But that's terrible,' said Arthur, twisting round to look at her again. She seemed to stir slightly, and her head slipped sideways on her shoulder. Her dark hair fell across her face, obscuring it. "'What's the matter with her? Is she ill?' "'No,' said Russell. "'Merely barking mad.' "'What?' said Arthur, horrified. "'Loopy. Completely bananas. I'm taking her back to the hospital and telling them to have another go. They let her out while she still thought she was a hedgehog.' "'A hedgehog?' Russell hooted his horn fiercely at a car that came round the corner towards them, halfway onto their side of the road, making them swerve. The anger seemed to make him feel better. "'Well, maybe not a hedgehog,' he said after he'd settled down again. "'Though it would probably be simpler to deal with if she did. If somebody thinks they're a hedgehog, presumably you just give them a mirror and a few pictures of hedgehogs and tell them to sort it out for themselves, come down again when they feel better.' At least medical science could deal with it, that's the point. Seems that's not good enough for Fenny, though. Fenny? You know what I got her for Christmas? Well, no. Black's Medical Dictionary. Nice present. I thought so. Thousands of diseases in it, all in alphabetical order. You say her name is Fenny? Yeah. Take your pick, I said. Anything in here can be dealt with. The proper drugs can be prescribed, but no, she has to have something different. Just to make life difficult. She was like that at school, you know. Was she? She was. Fell over playing hockey and broke a bone nobody had ever heard of. I can see how that would be irritating, said Arthur doubtfully. He was rather disappointed to discover her name was Fenny. It was a rather silly, dispiriting name such as an unlovely maiden aunt might vote herself if she couldn't sustain the name Fenella properly. Not that I wasn't sympathetic, continued Russell, but it did get a bit irritating. She was limping for months. He slowed down. This is your turning, isn't it? Ah, no, said Arthur. Five miles further on, if that's all right. OK, said Russell, after a very tiny pause to indicate that it wasn't. 
and speeded up again. It was in fact Arthur's turning, but he couldn't leave without finding out something more about this girl who seemed to have taken such a grip on his mind without even waking up. He could take either of the next two turnings. They led back to the village that had been his home, though what he would find there he hesitated to imagine. Familiar landmarks had been flitting by, ghost-like in the dark, giving rise to the shudders that only very, very normal things can create when seen where the mind is unprepared for them and in an unfamiliar light. By his own personal timescale, so far as he could estimate it, living as he had been under the alien rotations of distant suns, it was eight years since he had left, but what time had passed here he could hardly guess. Indeed, what events had passed were beyond his exhausted comprehension because this planet, his home, should not be here. Eight years ago, at lunchtime, this planet had been demolished, utterly destroyed by the huge yellow Vogon ships which had hung in the lunchtime sky as if the law of gravity was no more than a local regulation and breaking it no more than a parking offence. Delusions, said Russell. What? said Arthur, started out of his train of thought. She says she suffers from strange delusions that she's living in the real world. It's no good telling her that she is living in the real world because she just says that's why the delusions are so strange. Don't know about you, but I find that kind of conversation pretty exhausting. Give her the tablets and piss off for a beer is my answer. I mean, you can only muck about so much, can't you? Arthur frowned, not for the first time. Well... And all this dreams and nightmare stuff and the doctors going on about strange jumps in her brainwave patterns. Jumps? This, said Fenny. Arthur whirled round in his seat and stared into her suddenly open but utterly vacant eyes. Whatever she was looking at wasn't in the car. Her eyes fluttered, her head jerked once, and then she was sleeping peacefully. What did she say? he asked anxiously. She said, this. This what? This what? How the heck should I know? This hedgehog, that chimney pot, the other pair of Don Alfonso's tweezers. She's barking mad. I thought I'd mentioned that. You don't seem to care very much. Arthur tried to say it as matter-of-factly as possible, but it didn't seem to work. Look, buster. OK, I'm sorry. It's none of my business. I didn't mean it to sound like that said Arthur. I know you care a lot, obviously, he added, lying. I know that you have to deal with it somehow. You'll have to excuse me. I just hitched from the other side of the Horsehead Nebula. He stared furiously out of the window. He was astonished that of all the sensations fighting for room in his head on this night as he returned to the home that he thought had vanished into oblivion forever, the one that was compelling him was an obsession with this bizarre girl of whom he knew nothing other than that she had said this to him, and that he wouldn't wish her brother on a Vogon. So, um, what were the jumps, these jumps you mentioned? He went on to say as quickly as he could. Look, this is my sister. I don't even know why I'm talking to you about... OK, I'm sorry. Perhaps you'd better let me out. This is... At the moment he said it, it became impossible, because the storm which had passed them by suddenly erupted again. Lightning belted through the sky, and someone seemed to be pouring something which closely resembled the Atlantic Ocean over them through a sieve. 
Russell swore and stared intently for a few seconds as the sky blattered at them. He worked out his anger by rashly accelerating to pass a lorry marked McKenna's all-weather haulage. The tension eased as the rain subsided. It started with all that business of the CIA agent they found in the reservoir when everybody had all the hallucinations and everything, you remember? Arthur wondered for a moment whether to mention again that he had just hitchhiked back from the other side of the Horsehead Nebula and was, for this and various other related and astounding reasons, a little out of touch with recent events, but he decided it would only confuse matters further. No, he said. That was the moment she cracked up. She was in a cafe somewhere, Rickmansworth. Don't know what she was doing there, but that was where she cracked up. Apparently, she stood up, calmly announced that she had undergone some extraordinary revelation or something, wobbled a bit, looked confused, and finally collapsed, screaming into an egg sandwich. Arthur winced. I'm very sorry to hear that, he said a little stiffly. Russell made a sort of grumping noise. So what, said Arthur, in an attempt to piece things together, was the CIA agent doing in the reservoir? Bobbing up and down, of course. He was dead. But what? Come on, you remember all that stuff, the hallucinations. Everyone said it was the CIA experimenting with drug warfare or something. Some crackpot theory that instead of invading a country, it would be much cheaper and more effective to make everyone think they'd been invaded. What hallucinations were those, exactly? said Arthur in a rather quiet voice. What do you mean, what hallucinations? I'm talking about all that stuff with the big yellow ships, everyone going crazy and saying we're going to die, and then pop, they vanished as the effect wore off. The CIA denied it, which meant it must be true. Arthur's head went a little swimmy. His hand grabbed at something to steady himself and gripped it tightly. His mouth made little opening and closing movements, as if it was on his mind to say something, but nothing emerged. Anyway, continued Russell, whatever drug it was didn't seem to wear off so fast with Fenny. I was all for suing the CIA, but a lawyer friend of mine said it would be like trying to attack a lunatic asylum with a banana, so he shrugged. The Vogon, squeaked Arthur. The yellow ships vanished? Well, of course they did. They were hallucinations, said Russell, and looked at Arthur oddly. You trying to say you don't remember any of this? Where have you been, for heaven's sake? This was, to Arthur, such an astonishingly good question that he half leapt out of his seat with shock. Christ! yelled Russell, fighting to control the car, which was suddenly trying to skid. He pulled it out of the path of an oncoming lorry and swerved up onto a grass bank. As the car lurched to a halt, the girl in the back was thrown against Russell's seat and collapsed awkwardly. Arthur twisted round in horror. Is she all right? he blurted out. Russell swept his hands angrily back through his blow-dried hair. He tugged at his blonde moustache. He turned to Arthur. Would you please, he said, let go of the handbrake. Chapter 6 From here it was a four-mile walk to his village a mile further to the turning to which the abominable Russell had now fiercely declined to take him, and from there a further three miles of winding country lane. The Saab seethed off into the night. Arthur watched it go, as stunned as a man might be who, having believed himself to be totally blind for five years, 
suddenly discovers that he had merely been wearing too large a hat. He shook his head sharply in the hope that it might dislodge some salient fact which would fall into place and make sense of an otherwise utterly bewildering universe. But since the salient fact, if there was one, entirely failed to do this, he set off up the road again, hoping that a good vigorous walk, and maybe even some good painful blisters, would help to reassure him of his own existence at least, if not his sanity. It was 10.30 when he arrived, a fact he discovered from the steamed and greasy window of the horse and groom pub, in which there had hung for many years a battered old Guinness clock, which featured a picture of an emu with a pint glass jammed rather amusingly down its throat. This was the pub at which he had passed the fateful lunchtime during which first his house and then the entire planet Earth had been demolished, or rather had seemed to be demolished. No, damn it, had been demolished. Because if it hadn't, then where the bloody heck had he been for the last eight years? And how had he got there if not in one of the big yellow Vogon ships which the appalling Russell had just been telling him were merely drug-induced hallucinations? And yet if it had been demolished, what was he currently standing on? He jammed the brake on this line of thought because it wasn't going to get him any further than it had the last 20 times he'd been over it. He started again. This was the pub at which he had passed the fateful lunchtime during which whatever it was had happened that he was going to sort out later had happened and it still didn't make sense. He started again. This was the pub in which... This was a pub... Pubs served drinks, and he could certainly do with one. Satisfied that his jumbled thought processes had at last arrived at a conclusion, and a conclusion he was happy with, even if it wasn't the one he had set out to achieve, he strode towards the door and stopped. A small, black, wire-haired terrier ran out from behind a low wall and then, catching sight of Arthur, began to snarl. Now Arthur knew this dog, and he knew it well. It belonged to an advertising friend of his and was called Know Nothing Bozo the Non-Wonder Dog because the way its hair stood up on its head reminded people of the President of the United States of America and the dog knew Arthur, or at least should do. It was a stupid dog, could not even read an autocue which was why some people had protested about its name but it should at least have been able to recognise Arthur, instead of standing there, hackles raised, as if Arthur was the most fearful apparition ever to intrude upon its feeble-witted life. This prompted Arthur to go and peer at the window again, this time with an eye not for the asphyxiating emu, but for himself. Seeing himself for the first time suddenly in a familiar context, he had to admit that the dog had a point. He looked a lot like something a farmer would use to scare birds with, and there was no doubt but that to go into the pub in his present condition would excite comment of a raucous kind, and worse still, there would doubtless be several people in there at the moment whom he knew, all of whom would be bound to bombard him with questions which, at the moment, he felt ill-equipped to deal with. Will Smithers, for instance, the owner of Know Nothing Bozo, the non-wonder dog, an animal so stupid that it had been sacked from one of Will's own commercials for being incapable of knowing which dog food it was supposed to prefer, despite the fact that the meat in all the other bowls had had engine oil poured over it. Will would definitely be in there. Here was his dog, there was his car, 
a grey Porsche 928S with a sign in the back window which read, My other car is also a Porsche. Damn him. He stared at it and realised that he had just learned something he hadn't known before. Will Smithers, like most of the overpaid and underscrupulous bastards Arthur knew in advertising, made a point of changing his car every August so that he could tell people his accountant made him do it, though the truth was that his accountant was trying like hell to stop him, what with all the alimony he had to pay and so on, and this was the same car Arthur remembered him having before. The number plate proclaimed its year. Given that it was now winter, and that the event which had caused Arthur so much trouble eight of his personal years ago had occurred at the beginning of September, less than six or seven months could have passed here. He stood terribly still for a moment, and let know-nothing Bozo jump up and down, yapping at him. He was suddenly stunned by a realisation he could no longer avoid, which was this. He was now an alien on his own world. Try as they might, no one was even going to be able to believe his story. Not only did it sound perfectly potty, but it was flatly contradicted by the simplest observable facts. Was this really the Earth? Was there the slightest possibility that he had made some extraordinary mistake? The pub in front of him was unbearably familiar to him in every detail, every brick, every piece of peeling paint, and inside he could sense its familiar, stuffy, noisy warmth, its exposed beams, its unauthentic cast-iron light fittings, its bar sticky with beer that people he knew had put their elbows in, overlooked by cardboard cutouts of girls with packets of peanuts stapled all over their breasts. It was all the stuff of his home, his world. He even knew this blasted dog. Hey, no nothing! The sound of Will Smithers' voice meant he had to decide what to do quickly. If he stood his ground, he would be discovered, and the whole circus would begin. To hide would only postpone the moment, and it was bitterly cold now. The fact that it was Will made the choice easier. It wasn't that Arthur disliked him as such. Will was quite fun. It was just that he was fun in such an exhausting way, because being in advertising, he always wanted you to know how much fun he was having and where he had got his jacket from. Mindful of this, Arthur hid behind a van. Hey, no nothing, what's up? The door opened and Will came out, wearing a leather flying jacket that he'd got a mate of his at the Road Research Laboratory to crash a car into specially, in order to get that battered look. No nothing yelped with delight and, having got the attention it wanted, was happy to forget Arthur. Will was with some friends and they had a game they played with the dog. Commies! they all shouted at the dog in chorus. Commies, commies, commies! The dog went berserk with barking, prancing up and down, yapping its little heart out, beside itself in transports of ecstatic rage. They all laughed and cheered it on, then gradually dispersed to their various cars and disappeared into the night. Well, that clears one thing up, thought Arthur from behind the van. This is quite definitely the planet I remember. Chapter 7. His house was still there. How or why, he had no idea. He had decided to go and have a look while he was waiting for the pub to empty, so that he could go and ask the landlord for a bed for the night when everyone else had gone. And there it was. 
he hurriedly let himself in with the key he kept under a stone frog in the garden, because, astoundingly, the phone was ringing. He had heard it faintly all the way up the lane, and had started to run as soon as he realised where the sound was coming from. He hurriedly let himself in with the key he kept under a stone frog in the garden, because, astoundingly, the phone was ringing. The door had to be forced open because of the astonishing accumulation of junk mail on the doormat. It jammed itself stuck on what he would later discover were 14 identical, personally addressed invitations to apply for a credit card he already had, 17 identical threatening letters for non-payment of bills on a credit card he didn't have, 33 identical letters saying that he personally had been specially selected as a man of taste and discrimination who knew what he wanted and where he was going in today's sophisticated jet-setting world and would he therefore like to buy some grotty wallet. And also a dead tabby kitten. He rammed himself through the relatively narrow opening afforded by all this, stumbled through a pile of wine offers that no discriminating connoisseur would want to miss, slithered over a heap of beach villa holidays, blundered up the dark stairs to his bedroom and got to the phone just as it stopped ringing. He collapsed, panting, onto his cold, musty-smelling bed and for a few minutes stopped trying to prevent the world from spinning round his head in the way it obviously wanted to. When it had enjoyed its little spin and had calmed down a bit, Arthur reached out for the bedside light, not expecting it to come on. To his surprise, it did. This appealed to Arthur's sense of logic. Since the electricity board cut him off without fail every time he paid his bill, it seemed only reasonable that they should leave him connected when he didn't. Sending the money obviously only drew attention to yourself. The room was much as he had left it, i.e. festeringly untidy, though the effect was muted a little by a thick layer of dust. Half-read books and magazines nestled amongst piles of half-used towels. Half-pairs of socks reclined in half-drunk cups of coffee. What was once a half-eaten sandwich had now half-turned into something that Arthur entirely didn't want to know about. Bung a fork of lightning through this lot, he thought to himself, and you'd start the evolution of life off all over again. There was only one thing in the room that was different. For a moment or so he couldn't see what the one thing that was different was, because it too was covered in a film of disgusting dust. Then his eyes caught it and stopped. It was next to a battered old television, on which it was only possible to watch open university study courses, because if it tried to show anything more exciting it would break down. It was a box. Arthur pushed himself up on his elbows and peered at it. It was a grey box, with a kind of dull luster to it. It was a cubic grey box, just over a foot on a side. It was tied with a single grey ribbon, knotted into a neat bow on the top. He got up, walked over and touched it in surprise. Whatever it was was clearly gift-wrapped, neatly and beautifully, and was waiting for him to open it. Cautiously, he picked it up and carried it back to the bed. He brushed the dust off the top and loosened the ribbon. The top of the box was a lid, with a flap tucked into the body of the box. He untucked it and looked into the box. In it was a glass globe, nestling in fine grey tissue paper. He drew it out carefully. It wasn't a proper globe, because it was open at the bottom, or, as Arthur realised turning it over, at the top, with a thick rim. It was a bowl. A fish bowl. 
It was made of the most wonderful glass, perfectly transparent yet with an extraordinary silver-grey quality, as if crystal and slate had gone into its making. Arthur slowly turned it over and over in his hands. It was one of the most beautiful objects he had ever seen, but he was entirely perplexed by it. He looked into the box, but other than the tissue paper there was nothing. On the outside of the box there was nothing. He turned the bowl round again. It was wonderful. It was exquisite. But it was a fish bowl. He tapped it with his thumbnail and it rang with a deep and glorious chime which was sustained for longer than seemed possible and when at last it faded seemed not to die away but to drift off into other worlds as into a deep sea dream. Entranced, Arthur turned it round yet again and this time the light from the dusty little bedside lamp caught it at a different angle and glittered on some fine abrasions on the fishbowl's surface. He held it up, adjusting the angle to the light, and suddenly saw clearly the finely engraved shapes of words shadowed on the glass. So long, they said, and thanks. And that was all. He blinked and understood nothing. For fully five more minutes he turned the object round and round, held it to the light at different angles, tapped it for its mesmerising chime, and pondered on the meaning of the shadowy letters, but could find none. Finally he stood up, filled the bowl with water from the tap, and put it back on the table next to the television. He shook the little babel fish from his ear and dropped it wriggling into the bowl. He wouldn't be needing it any more, except for watching foreign movies. He returned to lie on his bed and turned out the light. He lay still and quiet, he absorbed the enveloping darkness, slowly relaxed his limbs from end to end, eased and regulated his breathing, gradually cleared his mind of all thought, closed his eyes and was completely incapable of getting to sleep. The night was uneasy with rain. The rain clouds themselves had now moved on and were currently concentrating their attention on a small cafe just outside Bournemouth, but the sky through which they had passed had been disturbed by them and now wore a damply ruffled air, as if it didn't know what else it might not do if further provoked. The moon was out, in a watery way. It looked like a ball of paper from the back pocket of jeans that have just come out of the washing machine, and which only time and ironing would tell if it was an old shopping list or a five-pound note. The wind flicked about a little, like the tail of a horse that's trying to decide what sort of mood it's in tonight, and a bell somewhere chimed midnight. A skylight creaked open. It was stiff and had to be jiggled and persuaded a little, because the frame was slightly rotten and the hinge had at some time in its life been rather sensibly painted over, but eventually it was open. A strut was found to prop it, and a figure struggled out into the narrow gully between the opposing pitches of the roof. It stood and watched the sky in silence. The figure was completely unrecognisable as the wild-looking creature who had burst crazily into the cottage a little over an hour ago. Gone was the ragged threadbare dressing gown smeared with the mud of a hundred worlds, stained with junk food condiment from a hundred grimy spaceports. Gone was the tangled mane of hair, gone the long and knotted beard, flourishing ecosystem and all. Instead, 
There was Arthur Dent, the smooth and casual, in corduroys and a chunky sweater. His hair was cropped and washed, his chin clean-shaven. Only the eyes still said that whatever it was the universe thought it was doing to him, he would still like it pleased to stop. They were not the same eyes with which he had last looked out at this particular scene, and the brain which interpreted the images the eyes resolved was not the same brain. There had been no surgery involved, just the continual wrenching of experience. The night seemed like an alive thing to him at this moment, the dark earth around him a being in which he was rooted. He could feel like a tingle on distant nerve ends the flood of a far river, the roll of invisible hills, the knot of heavy rain clouds parked somewhere away to the south. He could sense, too, the thrill of being a tree, which was something he hadn't expected. He knew that it felt good to curl your toes in the earth, but he'd never realised it could feel quite as good as that. He could sense an almost unseemly wave of pleasure reaching out to him all the way from the new forest. He must try this summer, he thought, and see what having leaves felt like. From another direction he felt the sensation of being a sheep startled by a flying saucer, but it was virtually indistinguishable from the feeling of being a sheep startled by anything else it ever encountered, for they were creatures who learned very little on their journey through life, and would be startled to see the sun rising in the morning, and astonished by all the green stuff in the fields. He was surprised to find he could feel the sheep being startled by the sun that morning, and the morning before, and being startled by a clump of trees the day before that. He could go further and further back, but it got dull because all it consisted of was sheep being startled by things they had been startled by the day before. He left the sheep and let his mind drift outwards sleepily in developing ripples. It felt the presence of other minds, hundreds of them, thousands in a web, some sleepy, some sleeping, some terribly excited, one fractured. One fractured. He passed it fleetingly, and tried to feel for it again, but it eluded him like the other card with an apple on it in a memory course. He felt a spasm of excitement because he knew instinctively who it was, or at least knew who it was he wanted it to be, and once you know what it is you want to be true, instinct is a very useful device for enabling you to know that it is. He instinctively knew that it was Fenny, and that he wanted to find her, but he could not. By straining too much for it, he could feel he was losing this strange new faculty, so he relaxed the search and let his mind wander more easily once more. And again, he felt the fracture. Again, he couldn't find it. This time, whatever his instinct was busy telling him it was all right to believe, he wasn't certain that it was Fenny, or perhaps it was a different fracture this time. It had the same disjointed quality, but it seemed a more general feeling of fracture, deeper, not a single mind, maybe not a mind at all. It was different. He let his mind sink slowly and widely into the earth, rippling, seeping, sinking. He was following the earth through its days, drifting with the rhythms of its myriad pulses, seeping through the webs of its life, swelling with its tides, turning with its weight. Always the fracture kept returning, a dull, disjointed, distant ache. And now he was flying through a land of light. 
The light was time. The tides of it were days receding. The fracture he had sensed, the second fracture, lay in the distance before him, across the land, the thickness of a single hair across the dreaming landscape of the days of earth. And suddenly he was upon it. He danced dizzily over the edge as the dreamland dropped sheer away beneath him, a stupefying precipice into nothing, him wildly twisting, clawing at nothing, flailing in horrifying space, spinning, falling. Across the jagged chasm had been another land, another time, an older world, not fractured from, but hardly joined. Two Earths. He woke. A cold breeze brushed the feverish sweat standing on his forehead. The nightmare was spent, and so he felt was he. His shoulders dropped. He gently rubbed his eyes with the tips of his fingers. At last he was sleepy as well as very tired. As to what it meant, if it meant anything at all, he would think about in the morning. For now he would go to bed and sleep. His own bed. His own sleep. He could see his house in the distance and wondered why this was. It was silhouetted against the moonlight and he recognised its rather dull, blockish shape. He looked about him and noticed that he was about 18 inches above the rose bushes of one of his neighbours, John Ainsworth. His rose bushes were carefully tended, pruned back for the winter, strapped to canes and labelled, and Arthur wondered what he was doing above them. He wondered what was holding him there, and when he discovered that nothing was holding him there, he crashed awkwardly to the ground. He picked himself up, brushed himself down, and hobbled back to his house on a sprained ankle. He undressed and toppled into bed. While he was asleep, the phone rang again. It rang for fully fifteen minutes and caused him to turn over twice. It never, however, stood a chance of waking him up.